Hello, listeners. Welcome to Season 5 of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Alexia Gordon, award-winning author and host of the show. Every other Thursday, I chat with an author writing on the not-so-gritty end of the crime fiction spectrum. If you prefer your mystery without hardcore sex and violence, join us in the Cozy Corner. Welcome. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host of the podcast. Kristen Weiss joins me in the corner today to chat about Going, Going Dead, book six in the Paranormal Museum series. Welcome, Kirsten. Thank you, Alexia. It's great to be here. To start, would you tell us about your sleuth, Maddie, and what she's up to this time out? Well, Maddie is a young woman who had a high-flying career overseas, and it all came crashing down, and she ended up back home in California, where she kind of got railroaded into taking over her small town's paranormal museum. And she found out she actually had quite a flair for it, even though she's pretty much an agnostic on the paranormal. So this is book six in the series. So she's well into the museum and enjoying things and really getting into the swing of it when she decides she's going to go to a auction of a bunch of paranormal artifacts and things very quickly go wrong because of course there's a body. <laughs> so it wouldn't be a murder mystery without a body or two. Exactly. <laughs> or eight or we can all see where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> what inspired you to create a museum of the paranormal for your sleuth as opposed to a more main, more, mainstream museum like American history or something like that? This is one of those ideas that actually came from a newspaper article. Years ago, there was a front page article in the Wall Street Journal about a guy who had a, I'm just going to call it a hot dog shop. And he had a little paranormal museum next door and people would just leave tips for the museum. And he discovered he was making more money off the paranormal museum than he was off of his restaurant. So he expanded the museum and it was just one of those, you know, funny front page quirky articles that the wall street journal used to have. And as I was reading it, I thought, wow, this would be a really fantastic place for a cozy mystery. And of course now paranormal museums have gotten a lot more popular and a lot bigger and a lot more press. Um, so I, I, I don't know if I've caught that bandwagon or, <laughs> or what, but it, it is, it is a fun place Um a fun place to be working, have my imaginary um, heroine working. And um, I guess the, the weird part about the museum, maybe not weird. The weird part for me is that I went into it thinking I wanted this book to treat the paranormal like most people experience the paranormal, which is that thing you see out of the corner of your eye. You're not quite sure what happened. There's actually no proof. You just, you, know, you don't know. So my book sort of straddles the line between traditional paranormal mysteries, which have the witches and the cats and talking cats and broomsticks versus a straight cozy mystery where you don't have any of that. So I think I kind of shot myself in the foot marketing wise, because I think people, people who are expecting talking cats don't get that in this mystery, but it is, I don't know. It's, I think it's, I think it's real. It's certainly been my experience of the paranormal, which is WTF. <laughs> what was that? 
did, did any real life paranormal museums other than the one in the, the newspaper article uh, sort of inspire you or provide good sources of research? Like, as you mentioned, they are, they are maybe not quite mainstream, but certainly more popular now. Like, you know, like Zach Bagans from Ghost Adventures has one. Morbid Anatomy used to have one in New York. Yeah, I am. Um, I finally got to, uh, I got to Zach Baggins in Las Vegas just last November. And it was a lot creepier than my paranormal museum is. My paranormal museum is very, it's very hokey, small town, <laughs> you know, cute with, you know, weird, funny things in it. Zach Baggins museum is creepy. It is so scary. <laughs> I've, I've, I've never been there. I've, I have seen his show on T or shows plural now on TV. Um, I, I mean, I have not made it out to his museum. Oh, it's definitely worth it, but it's, I mean, be prepared. It's, it's creepy. Um, so I don't know. I, I kind of, I like my little paranormal museum, my imaginary paranormal museum better. Um, <laughs> the, the less, the lighter, <laughs> the lighter, happier paranormal museum. <laughs> The tagline, the lighter, happier paranormal museum. Yes. <laughs> and speaking of museums, the, these days, even uh, traditional museums are sort of uh, acknowledging the, the appeal and significance of the supernatural and paranormal. Uh, and for example, there's an exhibit called Supernatural America, the Paranormal and American Art that's hitting some major art galleries. Like they've been to um, the, uh, the Toledo Museum of Art, uh, they're going to be in the, at the Minneapolis Institute of Art from February to May. So what do you, what do you think draws people to the supernatural and paranormal? I mean, you know, is it a desire to just answer those unknowable questions? Or you know, one reviewer suggested that it was, uh, uh, it was an attempt to fill the emptiness uh, that the grief leaves. What do you think draws people to places like a paranormal museum? I mean, I think there's a lot of all of that. I mean, certainly like the, the American spiritualist movement, which really came in, it started in 1848, but it really took off after the civil war when there were just, you know, so many people grieving their dead, um, certainly attracted people who, who wanted confirmation that their loved ones hadn't ended, that they'd see them again. Um, for, I mean, and I think a lot of people just have weird experiences too, where they're like, what, what was that? was that a ghost? Was that, you know, what, what the heck just happened? We just, there's just so much about the world that we don't know. And I think it's kind of, it's fun not knowing. There's a certain, I mean, science is great. Don't get me wrong. Love it. <laughs> Love modern medicine. Um, but I do think, I do think we also have a certain arrogance. Like at every, at every stage, it seems in scientific evolution, we feel like, oh, we got it. We know this. And then a hundred years later, it's like, you didn't know anything, you idiots. <laughs> what were you doing? Um, so there's that. But it's also kind of, it's kind of nice not knowing. It's nice having some mystery in the world and it's fun speculating about it. So I think um, between, yeah, between the, the, the whole big afterlife question, which is the big question, um, and just all the you know weird, quirky things that happen in our lives on this planet. Uh, the paranormal's just always been a part of it. I and mean, you can go back. There are ghost stories. I think one of the earliest ghost stories I heard about was from ancient Rome, but I'm sure there were earlier ones. There had to have been. I mean, our ancestors had to have been steeped in it. And uh, you, you mentioned the spiritualist movement, and your your character 
uh, Maggie attends an auction of spiritualist artifacts. Uh, for those of us not familiar with that, can you tell us a, a little more about it? I know you said it started or you know kind of really took off during the the Civil War when you know, people were dealing with uh, the death and loss of loved ones far away, something they may not have experienced on, on such a scale in the past. Yeah, the date that people go back to for the beginnings of the spiritualist movement is sometime in 1848 in somewhere in New York. I can't remember the, the town. Uh, it was these two girls named, they were the Fox sisters. They were young girls and they started communicating with a poltergeist in their house. And people came from miles around to see what was going on. And it, it made the news and the lecture circuit and, and things. People That was what really sparked people's interest in um, mediumship and, and speaking with the dead. And then we started seeing things like um, rudimentary or the beginnings of the Ouija board. They had all sorts of different devices to, to try to communicate with the dead and the, the turning tables and such. Um, and mediumship became very, very big. As I said, it became, after the Civil War, it became even bigger because so many people were grieving their dead. And it lasted well into the 20th century. Um, I mean, even like Houdini is famous for debunking spiritualists or debunking uh, mediums. And um, Arthur Conan Doyle was famous for being taken in (laughs) by the supernatural and by mediums. So it's, um, I, th- I think it's, it's heyday was post-Civil War, but it, it certainly grew up before that and, and continued on. And, and we still go to mediums. I, I know a medium. I know two mediums, actually. Um, although I don't think they would consider themselves spiritualists. Like, I'm they sure they would be. not. Because <laughs> um, that's, that's uh, I mean, it's considered a, um, I don't know if it's, religion is it but it's it's a still considered a very specific movement correct I mean, it's not just it's not a broad term the way paranormal is a broad term if i understand correctly yeah i mean there because at the same time so again it started in 1848 so you're talking about the victorian era at this point or getting into the victorian era there was also this idea in the victorian era um, about the, the, we were pushing the boundaries of science and that science could help us reach the other world and science could help us talk to the dead and that there were devices that could be developed to help us do this. So it was very entwined with a lot of, um, we wouldn't call it scientific thought now, but at the time it was considered scientific thought, you know, can, can we reach the, the dead? Can we talk to them? Um, and I mean, there certainly was, um, it, a religious element to it. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it was a religion, but I think a lot of the spiritualists would probably consider themselves Christians. Um, that of course changed as well. When you have uh, Madame Blavatsky was getting more into the Eastern religions and such. I don't know if she'd call herself a spiritualist, but I think she was definitely part of that whole, that whole movement um, of magic and mysticism and communication with the other the other side. Uh, and one thing you've uh, mentioned is uh, you know, the idea of the uh, uh, sort of debunking uh, frauds, because you know, in, in anything there are, there are frauds, um, mm-hmm. as well as people who are, are believers. Um, and the idea of researching the uh, paranormal or the spiritual, you know, taking a scientific approach to it. Um, I, I do remember reading um one book about the history, I think it was the, 
the Psychical Research Society in London. Yes. And there were some actual Nobel laureates who are members. So it's not like these were just, you know, random Joes off the street. I mean, you know, you win a Nobel Prize in physics, people tend to take you seriously. Uh, so, but in your series, do you, do you approach the paranormal as sort of maybe, or do you approach it as no, let's debunk it? Or do you approach it as a wholeheartedly, absolutely, or, or some blend of the, the, the three? I guess I'm kind of in the maybe. Is it possible to be like an open-minded skeptic? I, <laughs> it's really, it's hard <laughs> to, to do both because I, I mean, I think there's so much we don't know. It's arrogant to think that we do. Um, when you go into, uh, I mean, today's science, there's so much weird stuff that's going on with the uh, uh, quantum, quantum physics is just strange. Um, I've certainly had weird experiences, which I, I, to this day, cannot explain. But, you know, but that's, again, that's the thing is like, I can't explain it, but I can't, there are potential explanations, but I don't know if they're the explanations. It could be something totally rational. It could be a brain blip. I just, I just don't know. And I think for most people, there's that, I mean, there's a lot of people who are like, no, it's BS. <laughs> it's all garbage. <laughs> There is nothing, but I'm, I'm kind of, you know, what did, what did Hamlet say? There's more in heaven and earth that is, that is dreamt of in your philosophy. There's uh there's more out there. And maybe the, maybe the answer is all going to be explained someday, but right now we can't. I think open-minded, open-minded skeptic is actually the definition of, of scientists. Um, you know, <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't think that's a bad way to, uh, to look at it. It's uh, neither, definitely this is the way it is, or definitely this is the way it's not. It's like, no, let's investigate that. So I, I think the open-minded skeptic is a, is a fair term. Cool. <laughs> Good. So you write, you write another paranormal series, uh, the T and Tarot Mysteries. Did you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, that's sort of, it's kind of in the same vein. It's, it's set in a, a tea room with tarot readers, which actually years ago, there was one, I went to a tea room with tarot readers in the Tampa, Florida area. And it always stuck with me. I love, I love tarot cards. I read tarot cards myself, uh, not professionally, just for, you know, friends and the friends parties and stuff. Um, and so I thought, yeah, a tea room, because tea rooms are so cozy. <laughs> I love who doesn't love a tea room. Uh, they're so cozy and you get to talk about the tea and then you bring in the tarot readers and there's kind of that element. And because I do, um, know quite a bit about tarot, not to blow my own horn. Um, it's, it's easy for me to kind of bring that in. So there's a, the, the lead character runs the tea room side and then her partner runs the tarot side. Um, and so I get to bring in both of those things and it's just a lot of fun. Uh, I, I'll admit that I did a little, um, I shouldn't call Googling research because it's not really research it's googling but i did do a little googling on tarot <laughs> beforehand and i found the uh the bicycle playing cards website which uh, states that uh tarot dates back to the 15th century uh but really took off as a divination method in the 18th century uh but it it seems to become to be even more popular now i mean i you know on instagram i often see uh lots of uh, uh tarot cards Spreads. I see tarot journals advertised. There are lots of classes in tarot, whereas other divination methods like tea leaf reading don't seem as uh, quite as popular these days. So, what is it about tarot that makes it different? That it's that it's uh, still as popular as it was 200 years ago, or maybe even more? 
Gosh, that is a really good question. Um, I don't, well, first of all, there's, it is, you're right. It's super popular. It's so popular now that people are making, I mean, there's new decks that seems like coming out just about every day. A friend of mine just bought a, wasn't a knitting tarot, but like one suit has to do with knitting. Another suit had to do with crocheting. And then there are all these different little like crafty textile, crafty tarot cards, basically. Um, so you can get a tarot card for any, any interest you might have, <laughs> there's probably a tarot deck connected to it. Um, even if you're not that interested in tarot, the pictures are beautiful. So there's the the art aspect of it. You can have this little deck of art right in your hands. Um, yeah, there's just something, I think, I think because when you're looking at a picture on a tarot card, what you're looking at is symbols and symbols on a tarot card for me at least, are a lot easier to interpret than looking at somebody's palm and knowing that, oh, you know, this line here means that. You know, if I'm looking at somebody with a sword in his chest, it's like, well, that's not good. And gets, you know, start with that. <laughs> so, you know, I know that swords have to do with thoughts and, you know, so our minds are thinking bad thoughts and how does that affect? Yeah, you, know, you can just kind of build a little story by looking at these tarot cards. So I think in that sense, they're easier to interpret um, although, you know, there are people who memorize the meanings, which I find, I guess I have memorized a lot of the meanings just by using the card so much, but I think there's like less memorization and more prompts, if that makes sense with tarot cards, because you are looking at the symbols and those can kind of prompt you. You have a preferred tarot deck? My favorite is still the Rider Waite Smith deck, which was developed in... I want to say 1904, but it might've been a little bit later than that by um, uh, Pamela Coleman Smith was the artist and uh, Waite was the uh, occultist who kind of helped basically worked with her to do it. He, he pretty much, she, well, for you, for decades, she didn't get any credit. It was just called the Rider Waite deck. Rider was the publisher. Waite, Edgar Waite was the occultist who wrote the book for it. Um, and Pamela Coleman Smith, her name wasn't on it. Now, now tarot readers are insisting she was the artist. So she gets some credit, <laughs> give, give her her name. Um, and it's, it's, and again, it was early 1900s. It was the first decade of the 1900s. So the art is a little bit archaic, but I don't know, for me, reading tarot cards seems like such an old, I think the, the age of it makes it a little more mysterious and fun for me. So I kind of like the more archaic looking decks. I admit I would like to see what the uh, the the craft deck use. I mean, do they use knitting needles for this for swords? Um, I she she showed it to me. She and she's not a tarot reader. She now I have to teach. She told me I have to teach her now how to do it. Um, she's a big knitter and crocheter. So yeah, like because there's swords and swords and wands. So I think the knitting needles were the swords, and I think the crochet hooks were the wands, and I can't remember what the other two suits were, but they all had to do with. Things you could do with yarn, basically. <laughs> but I admit, I am I am picturing a guy with a knitting needle stabbed through his chest because I'm actually <laughs> I'm kind of I think I have actually seen that in a murder mystery. So like, now that would be a perfect deck to pair with it. Hey, those, those metal knitting needles. Yeah, I wouldn't want to fool around with those <laughs> for sure. 
And, uh, shifting back to your uh, paranormal museum mysteries, um, some of the action takes place in Central California wine country. So what's what's that uh, area of California like? Because it's, it's very different from, for example, Los Angeles or Hollywood that a lot of us might be familiar with. And and what kind of made that the ideal setting for, for your mystery? Um, I wanted, well, I kind of fell in love with Lodi, California, which is this funny little town in Central California, it's fantastic wineries. They make some fantastic Zinfandel because when prohibition hit in the 1920s, they were able to shift their Zinfandel grapes to um, shift away from wine to doing other things with them. Oh, they were like, they were sell- shipping them to the East coast so people could make wine in their homes too. But basically their vineyards survived prohibition. So They have all this lovely ancient vine Zinfandels that you can get in Lodi, but it's not, it's not, it's very flat lands. It's, um, it's farm country. It's flat. It's not beautiful. Like Napa is beautiful. Like Napa has the rolling hills and the oak trees and yeah, it's Napa's gorgeous. Lodi, no one really knows about it. Um, even the wine's fantastic. And if you go to the grocery store and you pick up a bottle of California wine, odds are good. It's from Lodi, especially if it's a Zinfandel. So I really enjoyed going there for the wine tasting. And I liked that it was, um, I like that it was a little more rural. And so I thought I, I modeled my small town after Lodi, even though it's, I don't like using actual towns because I know I'm going to screw something up. And then somebody from Lodi is going to call, you know, write a nasty review. <laughs> <laughs> this idiot does not know where the street is. <laughs> One star. Yes. That's an advantage of making up the town. It's like, well, I made it up. I put the post office where I wanted it. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, what, uh, what, what wine would you recommend people uh, for, for the wine drinkers who are also cozy readers? What wine would you recommend they drink with going, going dead? Uh, Zinfandel. Always Zinfandel. <laughs> yeah, a Cabernet, a good Cabernet is good too. Um, a good Paso Robles Cabernet or a good Lodi Zinfandel, I would recommend. And can you tell us a little more about Zinfandel? Cause it, it does actually get a bad rap, but, um, um, and, and I, and I'm not a, big drinker of it. So I don't know a lot about it, but I, I, you know, I've heard that it's not the, uh, you know, teenage illegal party in the woods beverage that it used to be seen as it's, it's a, it's, it's a serious wine. Oh yeah. No, it, it's a really, well, okay. There's, 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 I don't know if they call them white Zinfandels. There's like, I'm going to say it, there's like a pink Zinfandel, which I don't care for at all. But if you get an actual red Zinfandel, especially with an old, from an old vine or from an ancient vine um, vineyard, the flavors are really complex. They're, um, gosh, I, they're, they're comparable to a good cab, but they're not, I don't know. It's hard to describe it. I'm not, I like wine, but I'm not a wine connoisseur. So I can't say, Oh, this was, this is peppery on the nose. Whereas the Cabernet <laughs> is more fruity. No, I don't know, but a good Zinfandel again, especially look for ancient or old vine, ancient vines, even better. Um, you can get a really good wine and they're not horribly expensive, especially from the Lodi area and they are quality. So go Lodi. It's a, a red ancient vines Zinfandel from Lodi. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I would pro- probably opt for a whiskey, but um, for those, <laughs> Fair. those who like wine, um, that, that does sound like a good one. So what's, what's next for you? Uh, more paranormal mysteries or tea and tarot mysteries or something else? Um, I actually have a new series coming out uh, end of May. 
it's, it's my big murder mystery series. And I decided to put a murder mystery game in the back of every book because one of the, one of the uh, spots in my imaginary town includes a murder mystery theater or like a dinner theater sort of thing. Um, so I thought, okay, let's do this. And um, yeah, I'm very excited about it actually. And you mean a game like a, well, like a host your own mystery kind of game? Basically or? what I did was, um, so I, t- I actually taken a class last year on how to do a host your own, create your own host your own mystery game. And I, I realized it was a little complicated for putting in the back of a book. So then I kind of, merged it with, I don't know if you've ever played any role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons. I basically took, took that concept, made that a lot simpler <laughs> and merged it with a do-it-yourself murder mystery, host your murder mystery game. So this game, it can be from two to six players. Um, I don't know if you ever like when I was younger and buying the old murder mystery host, host your murder games, you have to have like three boys and three girls. And this one you can have whatever I've used neutral names, speak be any, any gender. You can just get a group of girlfriends around to do it and you can just sit around a table and play the game or you can do it on zoom. Actually. I don't see why you couldn't. So it's, um, it takes about, I think about an hour, hour and a half to play it. And I've played it and it's a lot of fun. I did one way back in the day. Cause of course this was before, you know, actually before the internet so definitely before zoom but one that kind of it, it would come in a box with little scripts and character yes. descriptions and you okay so sort of an, an updated version of that that's zoom friendly yeah updated simplified it's um oh, it's hard to describe but yeah it, but there is role playing involved because you get to you get you have a character you get to play and there's a, yeah. So it's, it's, gosh, I should be able to explain this better <laughs> to sell this better. <laughs> it's a free game in the back of the book. People <laughs> just get, just get the book <laughs> yes, that you can, that you can play with your friends while socially distanced. Yes. Yes. And I think it fits well with cozy mysteries. Cause yeah, those games, they're not bloody, obviously you're using your imagination. It's you're just amateur detective solving a crime. So it, I think it, it jibes very well with the whole, cozy mystery genre. And what's the, what's the book called? Uh, the first book in the series is called Big Shot and it's up for pre-order. And actually, if you pre-order it and you go to my website, um, you can get a murder mystery game for free and not include. So there's a murder mystery game in the back of the book, but you can get an additional murder mystery for free if you pre-order. And, and where can readers uh, buy a copy of Going Going Dead? Uh, going going dead is on all fine retailers amazon barnes and noble nook google play apple books hey and and what's your website for folks who want to uh pre-order big shot and get their free game and find out more about your other series as well kirstenweiss.com k-i-r-s-t-e-n-w-e-i-s-s.com and any other places readers can connect with you like the social media or anything I mean, actually, I created a Twitter account for the Paranormal Museum. So Maddie's tweeting a couple times a day. Um, if you want to, let's see, I can't remember. It's, it's, um, can, I, can I give you the link later <laughs> to put in the show notes? I can't remember sure. the link. Sure, no problem. I, I, I will definitely um, put the link in the show notes. And um, I'll also put the link to your, your website in the show notes. And um, actually, you 
sent me your press kit, which says you're at Kirsten Weiss on Twitter. Yes. Although I have to say my Twitter account's pretty boring. I mean, I'm not, oh. I'm not one of those witty, witty tweeters. Maddie's much better than I am, but uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not oh, really. so, oh, so Maddie has her own Twitter account. Yeah. She has her own Twitter account. It's the, um, oh, I found it. It's the SBPM underscore museum. Okay. And, and uh, what does she tweet about uh, exhibits at the museum or interesting paranormal uh, facts and finds? Both actually. Yeah. She's tweeting about interest, just paranormal trivia and uh, what's happening at the museum and just occasional, occasional weird stuff that's going on over there. Okay. So we just can connect with both you and Maddie, which sounds like fun. She trust me. She's more fun than I am. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much for joining me in the corner today, Kirsten. Well, thank you. And thank you listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. My guest today was Kirsten Weiss, author of Going, Going Dead, the sixth paranormal museum mystery. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Alexia Gordon, award-winning author and host of the show. Tune in next time for another chat with an author writing on the lighter side of crime. Until then, goodbye.